0: Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Give us a good time as we look at your word. Help us to see what you would want us to see from this section as we go through it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Chronicles, chapter 24. We had the king die. Athaliah came to power as queen by usurping the throne. She killed off what she thought to be all of the sons of David. And we saw the rebellion come in where Jehoiada, the priest, had raised uh, Joash, the the prince, and then they called him his king. and so that's where we're starting at verse twenty uh, chapter twenty four verse one. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned forty years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah, of Beersheba, And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. And Jehoiada took for him two wives and begat sons and daughters, and he begat sons and daughters. And it came to pass after this that Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord and he gathered together the priest and the levites and said to them Go out into the cities of Judah and gather of all of Israel money to repair the house of our of your God from year from year to year and see that you hasten in, in the matter Howbeit the Le- levites did not I uh, hastened did not and the king called for Jehoiada the chief and said unto him Why have you not required of the levites to bring out of Judah and out of Jerusalem, the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord and the congregation of Israel, for the tabernacle of the witness, for the, for the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman had broken the house of God, and also had de- the dedicated things of the house of the Lord. Did they bestow upon ba- Baalam? Ash starts reigning when he's seven years old, and he's going to reign for forty years which was a pretty good pretty good reign, and it says that his mother's name was Zibia of Beersheba. Now, we know nothing about Zibia except for the fact that she's from Beersheba, which means that she's probably a Jewish, all right? And remember, Athaliah is not, was not a Jew. She was a foreigner that his father had married, and Caused all kinds of problems. And then for seven years reigned in the stead of the child, you know, the line of David. So he goes out and he, his mother is somebody that is a Jew. And verse two says, and Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. So while the man that basically raised him lives, he does good. Now, it's going to be very interesting because after Jehoiada dies, we're going to watch Joash become pretty evil uh, because he's going to listen to the wrong voices. And so we see this. But we're also going to see him during Jehoiada's lifetime. He is going to be more zealous for God or appearing to be more zealous for God than even Jehoiada is going to be. And so it's kind of an interesting thing to say, Be careful who we listen to and what we think about. Because while Jehoiada lives and is ministering and leading him in godly ways, he is very godly himself, or at least by appearances. And we're going to see when Jehoiada dies, he listens to the wrong people. And all of a sudden, he goes from a very high standard of following God, and he drops dramatically. And we might see that today before we get done with this chapter. Uh, but while he lived, he was, he was godly. He's one of those kings that was part good, part bad. <laughs> and unfortunately, he ended bad and started good and ended bad. And in verse 3, it says, And Jehoiada took for him two wives, and he begat sons and daughters. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this because it uses pronouns with no antecedents. Who is the him and who is the He. I am going to propose that I believe it has to be Jeho- uh, Joash. It's not Jehoiadim. Jeho- Jehoiadim's already got a wife. He's already, you know, in his 30s or something. So I don't think it's pointing to him. I really believe that this is Joash that he's put that he's gotten wives for. Which means some time has passed away. You don't marry off a seven-year-old <laughs> uh, because it says and he has sons and daughters. So he's getting old. But he gives him two wives. Why? The entire line of David has been virtually wiped out. He needs to get a new royal line started because he's the only one left. And so he is going to have to do this. And Jehoiada is being very worldly wise anyway, saying let's get you two wives and let's get some some families in here and basically telling Joash, get busy. (laughs) Get busy and have some children. And so he probably got married fairly young. Seven is definitely too young to be married and produce children. But he is getting married probably in his mid to late teens, maybe early 20s, uh, that they're marrying him off and starting him having kids. And even if it was in his mid-teens, he's already been uh, ruling for 10 years by that time. So this is what's going on. Jehoiada gets him, a, gets him wives. And then I love this verse 4. And it came to pass that after this, did Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord. Now, this word for minded is actually his soul desired, his innermost being desired to repair the house of the Lord. This to me reminds me so much of David. David's soul wanted to build God a temple. And he looks at the temple. He was raised in the temple in his early years, probably knew it inside out, knew how bad bad a shape it was. And he wanted to see it repaired and established back to the appearance that it was supposed to have. And you've got to remember seven years Athaliah has been reigning. Ra- Before he takes over the reign, it's gone into disrepair. Everybody's worshipping everything other than God. Because Athaliah was bringing in idol worship. And Baalam, as we're told in this, in this section. Uh, so we have all of this going on and it says he wanted to see God's temple repaired. Now, I don't know if this was a righteous desire for him to see this repaired or let's make the temple beautiful and I will get my name on the temple. It has Solomon's name on it. Let's get my name on it. I don't know. I'm going to assume at this point that he did it for the right reasons, not just trying to make himself look good. And he's going to want this done. And he's wanting it done quickly as he goes through this this statement of of what's going to happen. And he's wanting to see everything. He wanted to obey God. And, you know, the question I have on this is when he was, when Jehoiada was alive, he was very righteous and was, was the righteousness that he had his righteousness or was it basically Jehoiada's righteousness? You know, saying, I want to please Jehoiada. He's He's like a father to me. I want to do well because of him. And this is the problem that, all kids have to face when they grow up in a church, they have to come to a place where they decide God is my God, not the God of my parents. This is what I believe i don 't believe it just because mom and dad believed it. I believe it because I think it 's true, and this is something that 's very important, and I think that Joe Ash is one of those who' never truly made the the switch over to being my God he goes I'm going to follow the priest he's raised me as as, like a father I'm going to follow his truth his desires and it and even in that I'm not saying that these kids don't believe God's word but there's a big difference between I believe it because somebody else believes it and I believe it because I truly believe it and this is very important. We have to get to this place where we believe it because I choose to believe it. There's no other, no other if ands, or buts about it. It is what I believe. And that kind of belief will take me through trials, tribulations, hard times. If it's my mom or dad's faith or somebody else's faith, when trials come, come around, it's not going to stand up over the long term. And I may even look good during the time that I'm following mom and dad. You know, and following it wholeheartedly and trying to make it look good. So in verse 5 it says, And he gathered together the priests and the Levites and said unto them, Go out in, unto the cities of Judah and gather the, of Israel, all Israel to repair the house of the Lord from year to year so, th- so that you hasten you this matter, Howbeit the Le- Levites did not hasten. This is, he goes to the Levites and he goes, I have a job for you. Go collect God's offering. The people haven't been coming to us, so I want you to go out and collect the offering so that we can fix God's temple. Now, we go, well, what offering is he talking about? Well, this is an offering that we're going to go to Exodus chapter 30 to look at. Starting at verse 10. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once a year with the blood offering, and and in that year he shall make the atonement upon it throughout all the generations. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, When you take the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for the soul unto the Lord, when you number them, that there be no plague among them when they be numbered. This they shall give, every one that passes among them, that are, enumer- that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel, shekel is a twentieth, is a twentieth, is twenty gurhas. And half a shekel shall it be the offering of the Lord. Everyone that passes among them that are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering unto the Lord. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. Then they, when they give an offering unto the Lord to make an atonement of their souls, And you shall take this atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it to the service of the tabernacle of the the congregation that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord and to make an atonement for your souls. So here is this offering that they were to make. Half a shekel. They were not to count the people. This is what David did, if you remember. David counted the people, but not to get their half shekel. So the way this was supposed to work, if you wanted to take a census... You just made everybody pay their half shekel of, of, of uh, silver. You counted how much silver you had, and you knew how many people you had by, by multiply, dividing it by two. And so this was the way it was supposed to work. David just wanted to get an idea how many people they have. And you know, so the Jews have always managed to not do, a, not do an accounting of all their population because of this very pro, prohibition of enumerating the people to see how strong they are. I don't know if they still do it to this day because they're not following God's rules, but they did it many, many uh, centuries through the Old Testament. And so the king, Joash says, go out and collect this half shekel from everybody over 20 years old, 20 years and older. And he told them, do it quickly. And it says they didn't do it quickly. I have a feeling they didn't do it at all. But it says they hastened it not. So even if one or two of them went out and did it, it wasn't being done wholeheartedly. So the, the Levites aren't ready to obey God. And this is kind of strange. You've got the king ready to obey God. And the Levites, who are serving in the temple, even though the king said to go do this, aren't going out and do it, to do it. Now, theoretically, the people were supposed to come to the tabernacle to give this offering. So there's a lot of gray area in this whole this whole thing. Right? And that may have been what they're saying. Well, what's wrong with the king? Doesn't he know the people are supposed to come to us and he wants us to go out and collect this offering? And there might have been some fear. You know, how do we walk the roads with this offering? Right? How do we walk around collecting an offering and then bring it back to the king, uh, back to Jerusalem? There's bandits in, those, in them that are heroes. And so I'm going to give them a little bit of you know, leeway that they were afraid, they were frightened, and, but they still were not being obedient to the king's voice, and they weren't honoring the king. And after a while, it says in verse 6, And the king called for Jehoiada the chief and said unto him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring out of Judah and out of Jerusalem the collection according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the congregation of Israel for the tabernacle of witness. So he's going, Why, you know, Jehoiada, you're the chief priest. You're the chief priest. Why aren't you making these guys do what Moses said? Not, he's not even saying what I have said. He could have said, they haven't done what I have said, but they're not even doing what Moses said. And Moses said to collect this offering. And he doesn't care what the reason is. He doesn't care why they're being dragging their feet. And he goes straight to Jehoiada and says, why aren't you doing this? You can see the roles turning here. Jehoiada was his guardian for a, for a while and has been running the kingdom in his early years in his name. And now he's saying, I had something I want done. I want the temple repaired. And these guys haven't gone out to do it. Why have you not done what God commands? And this is quite a statement that he's making. You're not doing what God has told you to do. Now, this is bold for the king to talk to the high priest this way. You're not doing what God told you to do in in the voice of Moses. And Now, you're not having the people follow through to do what was told to them. In the Jewish kingdom? Both. Both. The king was king was in charge, but the high priest was in charge of religion. And there wasn't a crossover between the two. This is why when Jesus came as priest and God and king, he's combining three different groups. So he he's stepping on toes. Jesus stepped on toes. And here we're seeing... Joash kind of stepping on some toes saying, you're not following what God says. And he really didn't have the authority to tell him to do it. But he's he's actually doing very good. He's playing politics pretty well. You're not doing what God said to do. All right, You're God's representative here in the temple and you're not doing what God said to do. And I encouraged your, your Levites to go out and do what God said to do. And... You know, we get our whole checks and balance of our government system in America based out of the scripture. That you would have different groups in charge of different things. And this is very much the way they ran it. The high priest was in charge of the temple and religion. The king was in charge of the people. And then he had his, his groups that enforced it. So he's going, why haven't you done it? And then he gives his reason. He says, for the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman has broken up the house of God and also the dedicated things of the house of the Lord did they bestow upon Baalam? So he said, they went into the temple and took out all the dedicated things. What are the dedicated things? The hooks that they used for it, the snuffers, the candlesticks, the the spoons, the everything. They took anything of value out of the temple of God and put it into the temple of Baalam. And he's not saying let's go back to the temple and take everything back. Cause he's going, it is desecrated now. It was being used to worship a idol. We can't use it now. We don't think that way, but that is the way they would have thought, all right, uh, in their day. That you can't use anything that has been used at all toward idols. Now, by that logic, you cannot have the people repent and use and, and turn to God either. But that's beside the point. They weren't thinking about those at all. But He's going, they've taken everything. That wicked woman and her children have desecrated the temple. They have taken all the stuff out of the temple, the utensils and all the things that we need to worship God. And Jehoiada, your your Levites aren't going out to collect the offering so that we can restore the temple of God. Now, at this point, we're seeing quite an interesting statement from him. He seems to be very much caring about God and worship, and wondering from the high priest, why aren't you all about worshiping God and the sacrificing and and all of this? We have a potential battle between these two because Jehoiada could be saying, you know, who do you think you are? I raised you from a from a from a pup, you know, and now you're telling me that I'm not doing things right. All right, Um, and this is a place where. Everybody goes through this. When you raise kids, there comes a time when your kids are no longer kids, but adults. And you can make recommendations to them. You can make you know, what they should do, but they are free to do what they want. And Joash has reached this point with, with Jehoiada. He's going, I am now in charge. You, I am king. You taught me, You taught me the scriptures, and you taught me these things, and why aren't we following the scriptures? That, that I was taught by you and the other priests. So here we have this whole problem going on. And then he has a solution. At the king's command, commandment, they made a chest and set it without the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem and to bring to, into the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, had laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought it in and cast it into the chest until they had made an end. Now it came to pass that when, that the, at what time the chest was brought to the king's office by the hand of the Levites. And when they saw that there was much money, the king's scribes and the high priest officers came and emptied the chest and took it and carried it to his place again. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. All right. So Jehoiada says, okay, fine. You won't go collect this money. We will make a great big offering box. Now, this offering box is going to stay in there. This, is, this box was being used all the way through Jesus' day, that they would put their money in this, into these boxes. And so this was going to be something that's going to stay. So he did get his wish, if that's what his wish was. He got something that's going to be long-term. So they made this big chest, and they put it outside the gate of the temple. And then they called to the people, they made a proclamation and said, okay, everybody get here to Jerusalem and put your offering, your half-shekel offering that God commanded Moses to take every year into the box. The disciples, the Levites wouldn't go out and do what they were told, so he said, fine, we'll make the people come to the temple like they're supposed to do anyway, and they will give their offering. And this is what he's asking for. Moses said, give a half shekel for every man over 20. I want you all to come to Jerusalem. Put your half shekel into the into this box. Now, in this particular case, because nobody's watching it, I don't know if all they got was half a shekel from everybody. There might have been some people that were really excited about seeing the, God's work being done. But what he commanded was, put your half shekel in. Put your half shekel in a person. And... And I love this verse 10 and all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in and cast in the chest until they had made an end. The people were excited. The temple is going to be restored. And again, especially when I read the rest of this chapter, I'm not sure that people were excited that they were worshiping God as much as getting the temple restored. And I think that's part of what Joash was looking at. He wanted the temple restored. He wanted God's glory, but didn't want the reaction, the, the reality of worshiping God. Because we're going to see that they didn't follow through with the, with the reality. And we know that the temple has always been the center point for the Jewish people. All the way from David's time, all the way through Jesus' time. And even today, Orthodox Jews cannot wait for a temple to be put in to, back into Jerusalem. They want a temple so they can worship, so they can give sacrifices, so they can have the place that God dwells because that is everything that they're focused. They don't focus on God, the omnipotent God who dwells everywhere. They focus on the temple where God dwells. And this is what they've always been in. And this is what I think the people are rejoicing in. But here I see them working on this temple and I don't believe it is because they want to center on worship for God in their rejoicing. I'm believing that their, their whole goal is we're going to beautify the temple. We're going to return it back to the state that it was when Solomon built it. Now it doesn't say that but when I look just a couple verses away we're going to find out that they go turn to idols real quick. So I'm just believing that they're going we've got a temple up there. There's where God is. We got the temple there. Nobody, will, nobody can defeat us because God's in his temple, which is exactly what they were saying in Jesus' day. It's exactly what they were saying uh, in the last king's day. Well, this is God's temple. Jeremiah, why would you prophesy that we're going to be destroyed? We got God, God's presence is right there on that hill. There is no way this city is going to be destroyed because his presence is on, the, on that hill. And that's how they've always looked at it. And I'm not saying that this is what they were, but I have a feeling this is where they were because of how quickly they turn away from the worship of God. That everything was focused on, let's get a temple built. Let's get a good, nice temple and get, get God's presence back here where it belongs. And then we'll go worship everything else we want to worship. Uh, because God is here, he'll protect us, even if we're not worshiping him. And this is a sad thing because so many Christians kind of do the same thing. I have Jesus in my heart, I can do whatever I want. I've seen it over and over throughout the years. Well, it doesn't matter what I do because Jesus is in my heart, I'm going to heaven. Well, God is asking us to be holy. He's asking us to be righteous. And yes, if He is truly in your heart, you're going to heaven, but we need to be serving Him. And Him being in our heart should motivate us to service, not just coming to church once in a while, reading my Bible once in a while, but to truly serve him. And I'm not seeing that attitude from these individuals, but they do bring an offering. And it says, "Whenever And it came to pass that when the chest was brought to the king's office by the hand of the Levites, and they saw that there was much money, the king's scribes and the high priest officers came and emptied the chest and took it and carried it back to its place. Thus they did day to day and gathered the money in abundance. So it appears that every day they took this chest, took it into the palace. The king's scribes and the priest officers opened up the chest every night, counted the money. I think the king wanted to make sure that the money was going to be used right. And by the same token, the priest wanted to make sure that it was all coming back to them. Because the king could have siphoned off a bunch. I don't think he would have at this point because he wants a temple built. But neither one of them trust each other, so they work together as a team to count this money so they know exactly how much money there is. And after they count the money, they take the chest back and they put it back in its place. And I love the way it says, and they gathered "gathered money in abundance. The people had a heart to give this offering so that the temple could be restored. And again, I'm not saying, because everything about it is all about the temple. There's nothing about worshiping God in any of these verses. It's all about the temple. Let's get the temple restored. Verse 12. And the king Jehoiada gave it gave to such as did the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and hired masons and carpenters and to repair the house of the Lord, and also as, as wrought iron and brass to mend the house of the Lord. So the workers wrought the work and the work was perfected by them and they set the house of the Lord in his state and strengthened it. And when they had finished it they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada whereupon they they were made vessels for the house of the Lord even vessels to minister and to offer wherewithal and spoons and vessels of gold and silver and they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. Alright, so the king in Jehoiada basically said, we're going to hire a bunch of workers. And it says they hired masons, stone workers, carpenters, to repair the house of the Lord, and people that could work with iron and brass. So they hired all these different, different individuals. So to f- get the house of the Lord built. And I don't think they just hired one or two. I think they probably hired everybody they could find in Jerusalem and anywhere nearby because they wanted the house of the Lord built. And they got it back, And it says, so the workmen wrought the work and, and the work was perfected, which literally means restored. They're restoring the temple to the glory that it was designed to have. And this is the beautiful thing that was out there. And they set the house of the Lord uh, of God in his state and strengthened it. Basically, they're saying they built something that God would be happy to be in. Now, this is something that we see. If you look at church history, the church history has been very interesting over the years. There have been periods in time when churches say, we've got to build edifices that honor God and and glorify God and, and are wonderful million-dollar buildings or the equivalent of a million dollars in the past. You go to Europe and you see these cathedrals that are just huge, monolithic places with beauty and opulence and that were built under the, the guise of we have got to honor God and show him how much we love him. Then we go through periods of time when people go, we can't be wasting our money on these buildings. We have to use our money completely to serve God and send missionaries and Bibles and and track. So you have these periods where really huge buildings and then just anything you can find, it doesn't matter because the building is not important. It is all about worshiping God. I think you might want to have someplace in the middle. Because sometimes a, a junky shack you know, makes people wonder, you know, what kind of God are you worshiping? But by the same token, spending too much money on the building makes people wonder, where is all this money c- coming from that you guys are using? We want to find some ground in between. Right now we are coming out of a phase where everybody just built you know, um, storefront window you know, store, uh, churches and, and converted houses and said we can't spend any money on the frilly stuff. No stained glass, No nothing fancy. All right? We're coming out of that and moving back toward the edifices and if God tarries long enough we'll see great big huge multi, multi-million dollar buildings going up with all kinds of beautiful things. And the reason will be that we're trying to honor God. Will be what they're saying, and so we see this. And here we're seeing them say, "We want God. We want a house that God will be proud of." Now I don't know why they think God needs a house in the first place, because that's what He told David. He goes, "I don't need a house. The, the The whole earth is my footstool." And that would probably be actually his toe could sit on the earth, not even, the, not even his whole foot. But his whole point was, you know, you want to build me a house for me to dwell in? He goes, the earth can't even handle my foot. How are you building a house for me? And this is what we've got to remember. God is not interested in anything that we can build him. He owns everything. He fills everything. Everything, the whole universe he fills, and then some. If there's multiple universes, he fills those. He's bigger than everything. And they're trying to build him a house that he's going to be proud of. Wow, God, look how beautiful this building is. You are just going to be so proud of what we as human beings did. And I can almost picture God saying, Yeah, well, I built the entire world, the sun, the moon, the stars, and and all the stuff that you built my house with, I, I gave you it in the first place. So why should I be happy about what you've done? Now, does that, does that mean God is totally displeased with anything we do for him? No. There's good things on it. He says he's going to take pleasure in it. He told Solomon that I'm going to hear your prayer and I'm going to dwell. My presence will dwell in this house. And when people pray here, I will listen. But it wasn't that he couldn't listen anywhere else. You know, he just said, I'm going to, you want this to be a special place? I will honor your request. And this is something that we think of. You know, there are many people that lift up a church as being a very special place. And if you can't go to church, there's something wrong. Well, I'm going to say, I love coming to church, I love meeting with God's people. But church is the people that come to meet together, it's not the building we meet in. And we want to always remember that. If we had to meet up on the mountain because there's all kinds of persecution, then God would still be with us up on the mountain. He would be with us if we were in somebody's house hiding and huddling and having to take three hours like they do in, in China to get together to have a meeting. That only lasts about 15, 20 minutes before they start taking three hours to go home. All right? Uh, but we need to understand they're building a temple and their whole reason is that God that God in his state that build something that he would would be honoring and strengthened it and when they had finished it they brought the rest of the money back to the king in the in Jehoiada saying okay we got money left over now this is kind of interesting because this would be like the every time that offerings have been made for something really big there's the overflow and Moses collected for the tabernacle There came a point where the workman said, Moses, there is way too much stuff. We don't want any more stuff. And Moses had to tell the people to quit giving an offering. David and Solomon, they're building the temple. And they didn't say quit giving, but they had more money than they needed to build the temple. Now, I kind of wish that we had that problem sometimes. that God gave us more money than we know what to do with. I think we'd find something to do with it to honor God, but I have not seen that, and I don't know of any churches that I've ever been part of that have had had too much money <laughs> to to do this. But they're bringing the money back and saying, "Hey, King, uh, High Priest, uh, here's the extra money. We're done. We're done fixing the house. What do you want done with the rest of the money?" And that is when they came to them, and it says, "Therefore." They made vessels for the house of the Lord, even vessels to minister and offer wherewithal, the spoons, the vessels of gold and of silver. They offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Je- Jehoiada. This would have been their flesh hooks, the snuffers, the candlesticks, all the stuff that we read about in in Exodus and in Leviticus. It was one thing to have a building, but once you had the building, you had to have the stuff to worship. All right? Um... Uh, they probably lost the brass covering of the brazen altar. They might have even lost the the, the brazen, brazen sea where the where the priests were to worship. Who knows how badly it had been destroyed? And now they're bringing all the stuff back and saying, "Okay, we got money. Buy gold, silver, brass, and let's start building all the stuff we need to actually minister to God." Makes me wonder what the priests were doing in the temple all this time. What were the Levites doing for? the years that Jehoiada was being uh, Joash was being raised up they didn't have the stuff to serve God were they trying to make the best they could or were they just ignoring the offerings I don't know We're not told what they were doing but all of a sudden they start getting the stuff to minister maybe they had just one one flesh hook for the entire offerings we don't know And but now they're building these things and it says they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. So Jehoiada says, all right, we've got, we've got God's temple restored. We've got the ministry and utensils. We are going to offer God's sacrifices. And note that it was as long as he lived. This is where Joash is going to have a problem taking over, and it's where the next in line for the high priest is going to have a problem. This will not be the first time we see that the priestly kingdom has problems. If you remember the story of Eli. Eli was the high priest when Solomon, uh, when Samuel was born and brought into it. He, he was not training his sons well. and His ch- sons were evil men. They were, the, they were next in line to be priests. They were sleeping with the women in the temple. They were stealing the offerings. They were you know, har- harming people. And God said... Saul, uh, Sam, uh, Eli, because you have not taken care of your boys and raised them right and kicked them out of the temple, your entire line's going to die. And in one day, his sons and Eli died. And Samuel took over the kingdom, uh, the priesthood. So God takes it serious. And apparently, Jehoiada did not train his successor to continue with the offerings, continue with honoring God and was not doing a good job raising the next generation. And this is the problem we have to really consider as Christians. Are we doing a good job raising the next generation, encouraging the next generation to take over? Because God does not have any grandchildren, they have to be able to follow him. And it's been said over and over, and I know it, and it is true. Every, t- every generation, the kingdom of God, the church, is one generation from not existing anymore. If we do not train up our children, our young people to follow God, there may come a time when nobody's following him. Now, we know he'll have a remnant. We're not going to say it's all, all going to destroy and fall apart. But we are already looking at the churches right now and how many of them have given up preaching the word of God and they're not raising up their children and Christians are putting their children in public institutions to brainwash them into liberalism and and thinking about things other than God and thinking happy thoughts about them being been in these schools and wondering why their kids don't follow God like they do we need to be careful we need to raise our children up to honor god and follow god and we're seeing the the consequences our nation is getting more and more wicked as we as we lose more and more of our children our children are being brainwashed in school that the bible is not true and everything in the bible is just fairy tales and and stories and the church as a whole does not stand up and say no it is true this is god's word it is absolutely true And we need to be able to do this. We need to stand up for our grandkids, our nieces, our nephews, our family members, and really bring in the fact that God is true. He is who he says he is. Give a reason for what we believe and be able to back that up with our kids and teach them. This is the fun thing when we're we're dealing with the world. The world does not believe what we believe, not even close. And Satan has a ton of lies for every truth of God. Let's start with a simple one. How do you get to heaven? Well, we know that it's only through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. They'll go, well, that's too narrow. What's some of the lies that Satan produces? Well, there isn't a heaven anyway. Once you die, you're dead. Well, you know, there's lots of ways to heaven. You know, just, just be, be happy. Well, you're going to have reincarnation. You'll just keep coming back until you finally get it right. Well, heaven is just a state of mind. As long as you believe, you'll be in heaven. Uh, Another one, all people go to heaven. God is love. He would never send anybody. And those are just a handful of various lies that Satan has thrown out. And be, be aware that for every truth of God, Satan has lots of lies. Because if somebody doesn't want one lie, he'll just throw another lie at them, and then another lie at them, and then another lie at them, trying to get them to believe a lie rather than the truth. And then you get these intellectuals who go bouncing around all the lies, and then you know, go, well, they're all lies, there you know, must not be any truth at all. And that is what Plato and so- Socrates were all about. You know what, what is truth? Who, know, who knows what truth is? There's no such thing as truth. We think this moral absolutes, uh, no truth is new, been around for a long time it's been around for more time than we ever can imagine that there is no absolute truth and every time a nation or people grab hold of a there is no absolute truth they fall apart because once you disconnect from truth anything goes and our country is very quickly disengaging from truth and we're watching anything goes You know, when we decided that homosexual lifestyle was normal and okay, that was the downfall. When they started saying that they could get married, you know, that they should be able to get married, where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line? If there isn't a truth, where do you draw the line? And we're starting to see people want any form of marriage. You know, I want to marry 12 people. Let me do it. I want to marry my dog. I want to marry my cat. I want to marry my horse. I want to marry that dead body over there. We're seeing all kinds of strange things popping up because we have disconnected truth and my my son corrected me he said that there's seventy two ge- uh, genders right now in today 's world and that 's kind of hard for me to imagine I see two but I, the, the world sees seventy two I have no idea i didn't even i couldn't I got so sick after reading the fifth one i'm going i can 't even buy in any, any of this this is so stupid so the world is totally losing track of truth and reality. And we need to be able to understand, we need to stand up for God and pre- present God's truth at every opportunity we can. Because man can come up with all kinds of reasons to believe what they want. Men buy into lies all the time. And this is, we know that, we know that that's true because Adam and Eve bought into a lie. And we have been buying into lies ever since. And because we are morally corrupt at our heart, it is easy to buy into the lie. We want to look good. So what can make me look good? Well, if I, if I think that God's got a big scale up there that says, I do more good than bad and you'll be rewarded, I'll be happy. You know, makes me feel good. My pride is going to really buy into that. Unfortunately, it's all wrong. But we feel good. Oh God, I did all these good things. You know, and the question really comes down to how many bad things do you have to do to ruin all the good things? How much bad what can you you could have the best reputation in the world and do one thing wrong and what happens to your reputation? It goes right out the window. Because what are people looking at? Where there's smoke, there's fire. They're going, well if they did one bad thing, how many other bad things are there? And the reputation is gone. How many, how many bad things does it take to ruin your good things before God? One. God says the wages of sin, singular, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And this is the problem. It is, you know, when you tell people that message, you'll hear this inevitably. Well, that is too simple. And I love to answer it. It's, you are right. It is so simple that you probably won't, won't do it. And if I'm talking to a man, I really get in their face and go, it is so simple. You don't have enough guts to do it because that's what it boils down to. Give up myself and live a lifestyle that's going to be different from everybody around me. It is not easy living a Christian life if we really want to live the way God asks us to live. Now, in one sense, it's easy because the Holy Spirit's in us and all that. But, you know, we get attacked all the time for living godly and we will hear it. Well, you just think you're better than us you just think you're a goody two-shoes, you know, you just think, you know, and they put all these things in their, into, our, into our mind that we don't have any thoughts of, but they are all going to attack, they're all going to be critical. I used to tell people when I was in high school, they're going, well, you just think you're special, look at that Bible you have in your hands. I'm going, yeah, well, I dare you to carry a Bible around and start, start doing things God's way. Not, none of them ever took me up on that, that challenge. Because they knew, number one, that they didn't have enough courage to be the, the target of all the attacks. And when we follow God, we will be attacked. We'll be attacked by the world. We'll be attacked by Satan. We'll be attacked by everybody around us. And our own flesh and, and mind will be attacking us. You know, it, it's really terrible. We've got all kinds of enemies against us when we choose to follow God. Including ourselves. How many times do we do things that we didn't mean to do? God, I don't understand. I just don't know how I can, you know, started doing that, God. And we're always under attack from people. And here we're going to see this whole process of going on. Joash is following God, Jehoiada is worshiping God and, and bringing all offerings to the altar and worshiping God. And the people are worshiping God, at least externally. At least externally because we look at, in the, at the other half of this chapter, how fast they fall from God's worship. And this is the scary thing. My prayer to God is constantly, God, I want to finish well. Because I have seen so many people that do not finish well. There's so many people in the scriptures that did not finish well. I have watched people in my lifetime that did not finish well. They f- are on fire for God. They're going after God, and then you... Give them a few years, and they're, they end up older in their times, and all of a sudden you're going, well, where is so-and-so? I nope, haven't seen them following God at all. They don't read their Bible. They deny God completely now. That scares me when I look around and see how many people don't finish well or mutilate the gospel. You know, they will tell you they're a Christian. They're still trying to follow, and then you listen to the, what they say and, how they, and the things they're doing and going, what is going on? why are you rejecting god and not following the things that you used to follow, follow and i've seen several people that are this way that you look at them and going is this really what a godly person does in their older years now they'll tell you well i've just learned grace so much that i can go do what i want to do well i'm happy for you i'm really happy for you but you know you're getting drunk on the weekends and you're i haven't seen you, you being a womanizer, but you're getting drunk on the weekends, and you're not going to church, uh, I don't know that that's what God wants, and you may have the grace to do it, but I hope I never get that much grace, I never want that much grace to be able to sin that openly, and not think twice about it, and if they do, praise God, I think they're using excuses of grace, and I think they're using grace as a license to, to sin, but that's between them and God, ultimately, I want to be sitting before God, and saying, God, I followed you all the day's of my life and I I watched and I served you and I can be proud of what I accomplished in your name. I did not bring dishonor and disgrace to your name and ultimately that's what I want. I don't want to bring disgrace to God's name because is God ultimately going to be hurt by it? No. He's bigger than anything that I can do but I don't need to see people drugged through the mud because of something that I have done something that I have led in the wrong direction. And we're going to watch next week that Joash is going to totally change when Jehoiada dies. So if you want to get a head start, you can read, read the last half of this chapter. But right now we're going to end. Lord, thank you for this evening. Lord, teach us to stay strong and worship you. Not things, not traditions, not activities, but to worship you and to keep you center of all things that we do. And we just thank you for for your love and care for us and your strength to live right. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says, The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this?